0: Hey everyone, this is Tony Holbein. You are listening to the Revenue Formula. In today's special episode, and it's special because we have a guest. It's Udi Lidago from Gong. We are going to talk about brands, why it matters, why you should consider it. Enjoy. No, we had some nice Kinder Chocolat chocolate. Oh yeah, the food. German
1: German candy. Um, I'm really worried it's gonna end up like stuck on the teeth. It's gonna be yeah, that's right. Also, you know, people. No, can... we were
0: looking in the, the mirror all the time, it's like, "Okay, that works out." <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, anyway, let's uh, let's start. Um, maybe we so already in this. Yeah, but the thing is, I don't think
1: you know a bit of chocolate on the teeth is gonna ruin our brand.
0: Oh wow, yeah, the segue is fantastic. Um, <laughs> I, I I
1: would look back on that. Have you have you ever? Try
2: talking to someone with some, some parsley stuck in their teeth. Do you oh. remember anything they said? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but you also know that when that person walks away, looks into a mirror, and then it's like, why didn't that person help me? Yeah, know, yeah. They could have yeah, told
2: it's, me. It's a, it's a lose-lose situation. An yeah. like, <laughs> hour later.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm so happy to have you on the show, Udi, because we were at a loss. What are we going to riff on today? And
0: here we are. It ended up nicely. So you that's know, really I, th- good. I think we're already way into the riffing, actually. <laughs> so for people that maybe haven't, you know, realized this, hey, we have uh, Udi Ledergaard on the, on the show here today. Welcome, Udi. Hi,
2: everyone. Very happy to be here today.
0: Wonderful. And we're going to talk a bit about
1: the very hard to measure, quantify, and almost also in some cases justify investment brand. And... Uh, I think it's just perfect to have you here, having been at Gong for quite some time, having been a marketing leader at five other startups as well, and uh, doing a lot of advising and so on. So I think it's really great to have you here, really, you know, in my view, an authority on the subject. So hopefully we can help business really understand how do you build that case. And that's what we're going to get into today. Let's do it. I think, first of all, one of the the things I've, so I'm a marketer, uh, and I've Dealt with this issue that a lot of people I talk with, uh, whether it's CEOs, uh, CFOs, they agree yes, brand it's it's really important. But then when push comes to shove, there's this you know neglectance to actually then put money down. Why do you think why do you think we are in this tough situation where it's really hard to convey to people the importance of brand?
2: I think the two main reasons that brands don't invest more uh, in in brand. Is, is two. One of them is it's hard to measure. And uh, many aspects of RAM advertising are still hard to measure. If you put up a billboard, you have no way of accurately knowing who in your relevant audience saw it and what did they do if anything after seeing it and how it affected their buyer journey. And the same goes for many types of events and radio and television mm-hmm. and other uh, types of new media that are not 100% digital. That's, mm-hmm. that's reason number one, it's hard to measure. Number two, even in the best of cases, even if you are, if you can measure that effect, it's more often than not going to be a long-term effect. And many, many B2B startups uh, want something that they can easily measure that has an immediate effect, which, which is not a bad way of thinking about it, right? If you've only got, I don't know, a million dollars in the bank and you've got to make that last till your next round, you want something that's going to drive results that you can see tomorrow. And so those are the two main reasons I think Companies don't mm. invest more in brand.
0: And just kind of from my perspective, kind of Michael, the marketing guy, saying like, "Hey, everyone likes brand and wants to invest in brand." Um, can we maybe define it just a little bit more? Kind of, what does brand actually mean? What are what are brand building activities and what are not brand building activities? And and a lot of people throw those two things usually together.
2: Yeah. So it's 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 not a it's not a clear cut definition, uh, and every team finds it a little bit different on the activities. But I think to your first question, what, what is brand? If you look in marketing books, there's long descriptions with long, lots of words that make people look smart when they read them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite definition of brand is, brand is what people say about you when you leave the room. That's what brand is. And it, it works that way for people. It works that way for companies. It's what people say about you when you leave the room. Um, so when you think about it, um, if I say to you something like uh, uh, Volvo, uh, what what would that elicit? Probably you'd say it's a very safe car, right? Because they they focus a lot on, on safety. And if um, I say a brand like yeah. uh, Disney, you might say something like magic or fun. That that is that is what brand elicits. It's what people say about you once you leave the room. And of course, when you think about people, it gets a lot more fun. But that's uh, <laughs> what we're talking about brands today. What would um, so
0: actually kind of quick follow up on this one when? When uh, people leave the room, what, uh, when, when you leave the room, what are people saying about Gong, actually? Or what would you like them to say about Gong?
2: I think if, if we're talking about the, the company, then and, and it's different than talking about the product, right? Mm. I think when people talk about the Gong company, they say, oh, that's a really fun, smart brand. Because they educate us a lot about what works and doesn't work in sales. So it's, it's, it's very authoritative. It's an thought leader mm-hmm. in the space but they also have a really fun, quirky personality. They they use a uh, crazy bulldog as their mascot yeah. and they've got these funky pink and purple colors, not the old boring corporate colors and their tone of voice is always very conversational. So it feels like someone, I want to meet the person who writes for Gong or the people who write for Gong. It's the whole team now uh, because they seem like really fun, interesting people. So hopefully that's what lots of people are saying about the brand. And we we've confirmed that with, with many, many conversations and, and, posts that people write, even unsolicited on social media, if you look on LinkedIn or Twitter and look what people are writing about Gong, it's it's always something in that in that realm of, oh, they are they figured out how to be very smart and authoritative at the same time, not being stuck up and, and too corporate but they're actually really approachable and fun and they have a good personality.
1: So, you know, Gong has obviously become this massive brand mm-hmm. uh, in our space, right? I mean, if you work in B2B SaaS, it's really hard to not encounter gong if you're if i'm being really honest right good so oh, we're what, gone. <laughs> yeah yeah. so what i wanted to hear from you is there's going to be some folks out there who need to understand why it's important in the first place to invest in brand and i thought it would be interesting to hear what has it actually done for your business what what outcomes has it helped drive over the years uh, in the duration of, of gong
2: yeah so so for those who who haven't been in the, in the great position of having a brand work for them. I'll mention some of the things, some might be obvious, some might not be obvious, but a brand makes almost every aspect of the business easier. And I'll give a few examples. When you have a brand, people come to you. When I started working for Gong, I had zero traffic on the website, zero email subscribers, zero social media followers, zero inbound demo requests, and over the course of a few short years we built a brand that ended up with having 40 percent of our revenue come in inbound so we can sit back or go to sleep and 40 percent of our revenue comes in inbound they are looking for us they're looking for the brand so business comes to you two uh it's much much higher to hire people if you're a brand um most people want to work for a big brand whether it's google or apple or amazon pick your, your your favorite, that's where people want to work and they want that logo on their resume. So Gong mm. has earned that status and people love coming to work for Gong. We've had thousands and thousands of inbound applications for every role that we put out there because people want to work for a big brand. They know it's a great brand, not just as a company, but also as an employer brand. Um, so that's another thing that becomes easier. Three, partners come to you, right? Many early stage companies struggle to find partnerships with larger companies. Once you have a brand, the partners start coming to you. We have a whole team now that's fielding these requests from tech partners, go-to-market partners, consulting partners, integration partners. They're coming to us several a week. So that becomes easier. Things like analysts and press, they come to you when you're a brand because you're now an authority on something and they wanna cover what you have to say or what company news is coming out. So all these things are like a snowball. Once you start building the brand, you become bigger. People write about you. Once they write about you, you have a bigger brand, they come to you again because they want to follow on what's coming up next from you. So a brand makes almost every aspect of the business easier. Customers come to you, employees come to you, partners come to you, the press, analysts, everything becomes a little bit easier. And I would say that um, if you look at, at it from a RevOps point of view, if you look at deal cycles and conver- uh, conversion rates, those get better when you have a brand because people trust you. Brand is essentially a name that people trust, unless you have a bad brand. If you have a good brand, it's it's a name that people trust. And so deals are more likely to close faster and deals are likely to convert better because you have that brand. At the end of the day, even if companies compare you to another product that might be similar, they will tend more often than not to go with the brand because as the old 1980s uh, saying goes, nobody got fired for buying IBM. So in our space, nobody got fired for buying Gong because you know it's yeah. a trusted brand.
0: Actually, kind of one one question that is playing maybe on the intersection between brand and, and category and category design. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned when you started out Gong or when you were I think you were the first marketing hire on Gong, right? You had zero traffic, you had zero emails, you had zero social following, and you know now you have inbounds. I think there are two things, probably a thousand, but let's just say two two major things that also led to this. One obviously building a really recognizable brand that people associate wonderful things with, but at the same time, it's also, um, you weren't just a, um, you know, a copycat in an existing space that, that built a cool brand that then attracted a lot of folks. It was actually also creating that category in the first place and then I guess with that brand also pushing out the category a little bit, I, I'm not sure kind of how it worked and, you know, what was the chicken, what was the act, but I would love to have your, your you commenting or your thinking on this over yeah. uh, on, on your experience there.
2: So, so happy to talk about that. And this is, this is a great plug to put in a lot of credit for our product and engineering teams, because you, you can't build and maintain a great brand if the product does not support it. And um, as the first marketer at Gong, I had the, huge luxury of having a product that was already best in category when we launched it. And we have an amazing product that reached ridiculously early product market fit, which means customers adored it and wanted to keep using it. And they still do. And everything becomes infinitely easier in marketing and building the brand and in sales. When you have a product that people actually love and rave about it, Uh, we, we set our standard at Gong, not just having happy customers, but having raving fans. And you can measure that. You can measure how many people go on LinkedIn and unsolicited write about what a great experience they had with Gong. You can measure that if you look at the G2 reviews, if you look at the NPS surveys, if you look at how uh, many customers want to speak at your conferences and at industry conferences and be in your press releases and customer success stories. And we enjoyed all of that. And it just makes marketing so much easier. So it's important that listeners don't skip over that part. You can't just do some marketing hacks and build a category and become a leader if you don't have the product that actually supports it. So you absolutely need the best product if, if you want to uh, to succeed in the long term. So that's number one. Number two, um, we actually came in as, as the third player in our category, huh. original in conversation intelligence. Uh, so there were two other small startups, but they had customers, they had business before Gong started. And it was not a very big, successful category. Uh, But we came in and we started moving very, very fast. And within a couple of years, we had left other two smaller players way, way back behind. They kept growing because we helped them grow the category, but we very, very quickly eclipsed their number of customers combined and and then grew it by an order of magnitude uh, to the point where they were both sold off as small businesses at some point while we continued to grow. Um, and, And that was a combination of creating really the best product that customers were raving about because you didn't see customers raving about the other two products. So I think that's a really important difference to recognize. It was not that I did some magic in marketing. It was, I really had the the most happiest customers to work with and then take that and amplify that. So that, that was a big part of building the brand success. The second part I think is, is really uh, more into marketing. And that is recognizing that building really valuable thought leadership content in an organic way can help me get through a lot of my marketing efforts on a very small budget. And none of our competitors were thinking about that at the time. So the approach that we took was building the Gong Labs series of content. Mm -hmm. And we figured that there's enough books about sales that talk about people's experience. You know, There might be a sales leader at Salesforce or a sales leader at Xerox, and they did this and they did that, and they wrote their memoirs. And that's their sales book on how to do sales, but it's very, very subjective. And so we decided to inject a lot of data and put aside opinions and show what's actually working and not working in sales. So from day one, I started looking internally at our customer calls and later the customer emails and other forms of communications, had our data analyst team analyze that data and surface what's working and not working. And then we started creating content around that. So we found things like, the optimal talk time on a discovery call should be around 46%. That was not a number that was out there before. We found what's the right number of questions to ask a C-level versus a director or below. We found when you need to shut up uh, after asking about pricing or presenting pricing. When to talk about pricing in your conversation to get the maximum conversion rate to the next call and so on and so on.
0: And most recently, how much to curse and when? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very, very important. <laughs> we actually did that
2: study a couple of years ago, and that's a great example, actually, uh, Tony, because we we found that salespeople and women who swear on their sales calls have an 8% higher win rate than comparable opportunities where the salespeople don't swear. And there's a reason for it because it's a type of mirroring technique. It's best used when your prospect or customer is using the same kind of language and you mirror that language, you're creating more report and you're gonna sell more because you're creating more trust. And when we came out with that, which was very counterintuitive and also very polarizing, uh, we, we put it out there as an organic article and the news sites ran with it and radio stations called me to interview me about it. And on almost zero budget, we were able to get a lot of press that I could never afford. So that's a great example that you gave of how creating a really interesting news story can get you very far organically without a budget. And we were the only company in the space for many years doing this, trying to churn out a new story roughly once a month or so, because this analysis does take time because it's meaningful. It's not just, you know, fluffy tweets and, and posts that someone puts together in 10 minutes. These stories take weeks and sometimes months to put together.
1: Just a question. I think not everyone listening—they're going to be at the the scale of Gong. So, the, and you've also gone through the early beginnings, right? So, say you have a, an established business today, You're, you've passed the product market fit. What you know? What are the first couple of steps businesses can take to get some of the benefits you've you've talked a bit about here?
2: Yeah, so if, if I were starting completely new, which, which I was fortunate to do about five times because I was always marketer number one at, at small companies below 20 employees. So that the patterns that, that work are first, um, have a clear idea of who your target audience is, right? It's in every marketing book, but it never gets old. If you don't know who you're marketing and who you're selling to, you're probably not going to meet them. And then go and look for what I call their, their watering holes, but whether they're uh, in-person or virtual, where do they hang out? So if they hang out at user groups or events, you've got to show up there. If they hang out in Reddit forums or LinkedIn discussion groups or Slack channels, you've got to show up there. So first identify where they're hanging out because I think a common mistake that folks make is that they assume that they can easily bring these folks to their own assets, like their website or their uh, social pages That's hard to do, if if you're a nobody, and initially we all are, if you're a nobody, why would someone come to your party? It's much easier for you to go to where the party is at and then try dragging someone from there to your parties. So once you realize that and you put ego aside, um, you start showing up to where they are and then you start immersing yourself in the conversations. So you start learning what are they actually talking about? What are they actually interested in? Where is there a conversation that you can embed yourself in that you have an interesting point of view? And by interesting point of view, I don't mean responding to everything with, yes, exactly, or that's my thoughts. Exactly, You're not providing a point of view, right? When, when you see sometimes social media managers that, that have a quota of they've got to put 20 comments a day, yeah. they're all gonna be, yes, I love that. That's not a point of view, that, that's being a cheerleader. You don't get famous for being a cheerleader, you get famous for, for having a point of view. So by actually having a thoughtful view that many times can be polarizing or controversial, that's how you spark a conversation and get people to respond, to you, right? Nobody will respond to you saying, yes, I love that. But if you say, actually, I think exactly the opposite and here's why, that might actually spark a discussion. So that's what we wanna do. And once you understand what they're talking about and you understand what your point of view is, you can start creating those posts and get the engagement yourself. So find who you're talking to, where are they hanging out, go get immersed in their conversations and then start your own. That's pretty mm-hmm. much what we did on LinkedIn and, and on Twitter. And we continued from there until we built our own blog and started getting traffic and subscribers there.
0: So on the controversial side here, I actually do believe, you know, most of the things that you've mentioned so far, uh, you know, wh- whoever's listening is like, yeah, cool. Let's do that. Right. Let's do some organic stuff. Let's have some you know, user or customer generated content that we're packaging and then bring it out in the in the Gong Labs. Uh, let's let's do some cool stunts on LinkedIn and so forth. I think where the where the crowd is a little bit more divided is okay. Let's run a Super Bowl ad. Okay, let's sponsor an NBA court. I think you <laughs> did right. Okay, let's do some other things that sound extremely expensive. And, and this is I think this is where folks going like. Okay, we're, we're spending a million, I don't know sure how much you spent on the Super Bowl ad and maybe not a million, but you spend a significant amount of money. and that's then where then the Revolves folks going like, okay, so where's the the brand attribution piece on the lead here, please? because uh, I need to you know have that in order to track back how much revenue we signed from the Super Bowl ad right. So And I think this is so maybe we kind of move into this part now of the of the yeah. show here because that is it is um, obviously it's a bigger bang or maybe not, I don't know. Kind of you please comment on that? Uh, but it costs something. And this is yep. where I think then the the friction really starts to starts to happen between maybe the CMO, the CFO, the CMO, the CEO, and so forth.
2: Yeah, so great, great topic, Sony. Yeah. So first I'll say uh, all those fun investments in Super Bowl and Warrior Games, uh, I didn't do those in the first five years ago. First five years I was working on a relatively small budget, just like any usual startup. And I found that having a really smart organic strategy allows me to stretch my budget very, very far. Uh, I think again to reiterate because it's important, one of the common mistakes is people take the little budget that they have and they put them on things like paid ads, which I found rarely work in the early days because if you've got a paid ad, especially on social media, then never mind which, which channel you choose, wherever your audience is. If someone's scrolling through their feed and they see your, your little ad for a brand they've never heard about because you're a startup and you're trying to explain the problem that you solve and the solution that you have and why it's better than everyone else and the call to action of start now or buy now or get a demo, that is a very, very complicated message to get into an ad that should stop someone from scrolling their social feed. And if you don't have a brand, that's not going to work very well. And so people. You know, I advise lots of companies, they, they tell me, Udi, our, our paid isn't working. And I tell them, well, just you're spending way too much time on that instead of building the brand organically. And once you have a strong brand, then people identify your color or logo or presenter or product in the ad, then they'll actually stop. So so paid advertising is is rarely good enough to be standalone to, to drive business. But once you have a brand, that becomes a lot more effective. So that, that that's something to keep in mind. And so in the first few years, I didn't do Warriors. I didn't even dream of Super Bowl. I did good old organic and we, we racked our heads on how can we create a provocative, thought-provoking, interesting video or article or blog or speaking session on a very tiny budget that would get people to stop and listen and read and watch. And that's what we did for years. Uh, at some point, we we're, we're like, okay, we've grown the space, we're recognized as a leader. What can we do to jump to the next stage? And then I found very attractive opportunities around Super Bowl and Warriors and and out of home and print and things like that. And we always, always hacked them. When I say hacked them, that is we spent a fraction of what people assume those opportunities cost because people know that a national Super Bowl commercial costs $6 million just for the media. I think it's closer to seven this year. And when you do that, usually people spend a few more millions on the creative and get big stars. So they end up paying like $10 million dollars for running a 30-second commercial. Um, I never had that sort of budget. That's beyond my annual budget most years. So uh, I found out that you can do regional commercials and spend a tiny fraction of that. And when you're a B2B business, usually, usually not always, your customers are not evenly distributed across the entire world or even across the entire nation, but usually you have one, two, or three hubs where 80% of your customers are. That was the case for Vong as well. So if I'm buying the regional spot in the Bay Area and New York and maybe one other hub in Chicago or or Seattle, I'm probably covering 80% of my market at 10% of what the national
0: spot cost.
2: So that's the first way that you can hack regional media. And if you haven't guessed already, I did the same thing with the Warriors game. I knew that the Warriors, most of their fans who are also Gong prospects or customers are here in the Bay Area. Who's watching the Warriors game in Idaho? We don't have customers there anyway. So I sponsored Like one quarter of a Warriors game only broadcast in the Bay Area, I think that costs like $5,000. I mean, you would spend more than that on on doing a dinner event for for a few customers. So you can do things for for pretty cheap if you're smart about them. And then the second thing that we did with all those things, we did it with out of home and with TV and with uh, uh, print and other formats, is you know that you're creating in order to amplify them to your digital audience, which you can measure and it is the right audience. So if I did a full page, uh, ad in the wall street journal or a full page ad in the UK times, all of these, which I did the wall street journal, you can buy the national paper or you can only buy the west coast edition, which is about 25% of the cost of the national edition. But once I have that, I can amplify it on social media and then I get to all of my audience, which I can measure because I can see how many impressions and clicks and likes and comments and cheers and all that stuff I get there. And now I can measure it to make the measurement, the numbers people happy. And I know I'm getting to the right audience because people who follow me on LinkedIn, and the people to subscribe to my email newsletter are the right people. So I'm just using that that uh, small investment in print or in Super Bowl or in, yeah. in whatever Warriors game as As a small investment to create content which i amplify to my digital audience and there i can measure everything uh one one other anecdote from from super bowl we wanted to make sure not just six months after the game to try and attribute something back to it but see during the the game during the game and during the week who's watching it are these even our customers or these truck drivers in i don't know indiana so we set up a tracker in Gong to see how many times Gong is brought, uh, Super Bowl is brought up in Gong sales conversations with prospects. And we saw a huge spike during the Super Bowl week that then slowly went down of hundreds of customers who said, hey, we saw you on the big game last night. We saw you on Super Bowl. That's so amazing. And our chief revenue officer reported to the executive team meeting after Super Bowl. He said, after this week's conversation of everyone seeing us on Super Bowl, we're perceived at a totally different level of brand right now in the market. Like everyone else is just doesn't exist right now compared to where we are. So, when your chief revenue officer says that to management and your CFO and your CEO is sitting in the room, you know you've done the right thing and that you're going to see great ROI. I'll, I'll say one more sentence, Tony. We also found that that week of Super Bowl 2021 became our record week of pipeline creation to that point in the company. So, even the most skeptical CFO, I love you, Tim. Came back and said this was a great investment actually because the ROI is fantastic.
0: So uh, number one, you're totally right. Um, so when I saw this Super Bowl thing of you guys, I was just like, this this is crazy. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it was an automatic conversation with everyone else wow. I knew in the space, and it was it was such a fun topic also to bring up and so forth. Kind of, hey, did you see this? Did you see what Gong did? Aren't Aren't they nuts? And obviously this this elevated you guys like completely. Right. So I think that's great. Uh, I think the outcomes are great. I think the attribution is great. And um, I want to go back to the, the point of time when you were starting to think about the Super Bowl ad and then to have the conversation with Tim, uh, the CFO, and then to kind of figure out what should we be doing here versus the, oh, look at this after the fact, everything was great because mm. That is, that is the easy, easier conversation to have is the, hey, believe me, this will be awesome conversation and people having big question marks.
2: Yeah, so I, I wish I had an, an exciting, inspiring answer there, but, but it, was, it was embarrassingly easy because uh, I'm very fortunate to be working with a CEO uh, who used to be a CMO, Amit Beddok, my CEO. Um, he and I have worked together at three different companies over the course of the last 25 years. Uh, with some breaks where we went to do our own things. But we've, we've been working closely together more than 10 years out of those 25 years and, at three different companies. And he gets marketing and he likes taking big bets. And so uh, I remember I took him I took him for drinks at uh, Shore Mines in, on the rooftop bar in San Francisco. And by the second drink, I thought this was a good time to tell him, oh, you know, what? I had this conversation this week with CBS. They, they have this really really uh helpful uh sales lady and she she introduced me to the world world of regional advertising on the super bowl and it took me about 90 seconds to explain to him how it's broken down and what i suggest to do which would be a, a very low six-figure number very low six-figure number no more than we would spend on a big industry event to go there for two days with the booth and i told him this this could could be our next big thing in in brand awareness. We break out of all the startups doing the regular Google and LinkedIn and and eBooks. This will put us in a whole different level. I haven't seen anyone in our space ever do this before. And he was like, okay, let's go twist Tim's arm and do this. That was (laughs) his word. So he was convinced um, like 90 seconds and two drinks later that, that we should do this. And uh and here's how we positioned it to Tim and, and to the board. We said, look, we're doing this as a long-term brand awareness play. We don't expect to see any short-term metrics move as a result, but we feel strongly that this is going to be a good brand play. Now, to be fair. At that time we were hitting our numbers and that is an important prerequisite, right? You can't just come and think that these things are gonna save you. If you're not hitting your numbers, Super Bowl is not gonna save you. If you're not hitting your numbers, putting up a billboard on the 101 is not gonna save you. So sorry to break it to you marketers, but you actually have to hit your numbers on this quarter's goals and building pipeline for the next quarters, doing all the regular quote unquote boring stuff. When you do that, you get to come and ask for extra pocket money to play and do fun things. And the way I build it is I always reserved roughly 10% of my media budget, programs budget, to do experiments that I would not easily be able to attribute to this quarter's results. I call them marketing experiments. Internally in the team, they were known as the budget line item called Udi's Crazy Ideas. Uh, but for the finance team, we put the, the, the title of marketing experiments. And we said, we're experimenting. That's part of growing marketing because today's channel's are not going to work in a year from now, so we have to experiment and do other things. So that went under experiments, and and this one was a very good one. I can tell you, many others were just
1: men. Mm-hmm. So I think I think this is another interesting point, right? Because you usually have when you do the whole budget allocation exercise, you need to go and figure out where do we go and, and capture demand, and where do we go and grow potentially our demand, which which you're talking a bit about here, right? How how do you best approach that part uh, in terms of splitting your budget out? Do you have any kind of experience or advice there you can share?
2: Um, if I understood the question, um, so, so it goes back to just allocating that small number, which I recommend to be between 5% and 15%. If you do that for any given budget, that leaves you enough to experiment with. And if you set expectations that like measure me on the 90%, this, this 10% is going to be my, my sandbox is where I'm playing with things. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar budget, which is not a big budget, you can take 10,000 and experiment with something. You can do a, a local print ad or, or. Can do an event that you're not sure about, but but you think there's reason to believe it'll work. And then when you've got a million dollar budget, I've got a hundred k for experiments. You can do some television or radio or do something interesting with that. And when you get a ten billion dollar budget, then you've got a million dollars. You can do a Super Bowl commercial, regional, with that you can definitely do some local sports games or or other sponsorships to play with. So your your budget grows if the company grows. You get more budget. That means you're hitting your short term targets, and then you get
1: more more play money. So basically, rather than, you know, attempting to do a bunch of math for something you've never done before, you're basically advising, hey, it's much better to earmark some resources to test. And then once something is working, you can implement it as as an ongoing thing.
2: Yes, I think I think that's the, the only rational approach, even if the finance guys don't always love that, because it's really impossible to tell. The experiment by by the definition, I don't know what the result is going to be. I'm experimenting. I'm mixing two things. I don't know if they're going to explode or combust or or just be inert. I'm experimenting. Uh, I can make up numbers if it's going to make finance happy, but I'd rather just be upfront and say, I don't know what this is going to do. But here's my rational explanation for why I expect that there might be a good outcome to this, right? I'm not just randomly... Throwing money around. I'm not. I'm not. You know. Once I once you start doing these these things, and and uh, other media companies see that you've done Super Bowl or taken up a big uh, out of home sign, then every day I'm getting offers from sponsoring um, uh, race cars in Formula One to sponsoring uh, stadium naming rights, uh, airport takeovers, all these things. And I look at every one of them and most of them, the vast majority of them, I don't think they're a good fit. So it's not that I'm saying, oh, okay, here's an opportunity. Let's go spend some experiment money. No, because even at Gong and many other companies, you never have all the money that you could spend on everything that you're offered. So you've got to be very intentional about what you're spending that experiment money on. So for Super Bowl, you know, I broke it down. I said, these are the three territories where, based on our CRM data, these are the largest hubs of Gong customers and prospects. This is why I'm choosing those. It's not a random experiment. If if that's how it came off, I want to correct that impression. I'm not saying just throw your money at something and see if it sticks. I'm saying have a really good explanation for why you think this could work. But even if you don't have certainty, go and and allocate some budget for it. Sometimes it will work. Sometimes it won't.
0: So, and I I think I know what the answer is going to be. But just because we have some people listening that think about you know resource allocation and cash payback and planning and so forth, um so you didn't you didn't sit there and i don't know when the super bowl thing is, is it in, in february uh usually yeah, yeah. early um, february it's not like you planned in a big spike in whatever in february or march or q1 and we're like hey you know this is how we're associating these things so you were basically like this is my marketing budget i'm gonna uh, or in terms of target i'm gonna achieve it with a 90 and then I have the 10 percent to do some other stuff that could uh, obviously is well thought through and you have a strong belief and you're backing up the data and so forth, but uh, you're simply lacking the uh, the data yet to connect it directly to a potential outcome, right? So basically you completely separated those two things also from an expectation perspective.
2: Co- correct. Now at the, at the end of the day, you know, finance, does their own math and they, they, work with marketing to decide which budget line items are considered demand gen and which are not. And then they take all of the demand gen budget and divide it by the outcome, which could be MQLs or SQLs, whatever you want, or pipeline. And that's their cost per lead. Uh, But but you do have to agree that certain things are considered brand awareness and we're not gonna put them in that Mm. math.
1: Okay, very cool. I kind of wanted to get back to actually one of the, um, the benefits you went a bit into, which is, you, you know, with a brand, you can impact the, basically the sales efficiencies, right? You'll see that the sales cycles, they, they move faster, the deals progress faster, right? I'm curious to hear, uh, are there some, you know, tangible things, if, if there's a listener out there now who want to see, do we actually have potentially something going for us now or not? What would be some of the signals they could go in and look for themselves?
2: That's, that's a great question. Kind of tipped. how do you know that, that you have a brand? Um, so there's, yeah, yeah I've, I've, seen several approaches to, to that. Um, but, but here's, here's some ideas. So first I would say, if you want to know if you have raping fans, which is one of our measures of a brand, you could go and check how many unsolicited social media posts are customers writing about our brand. If the number is zero you probably don't have raving fans. They could be happy, but they're probably not raving fans because that's, that's the next level when people who are just having a fantastic time using your product and it's either making them happy or successful or rich or something else or very efficient or whatever your product does for them. If they take time out of their day to go on LinkedIn or Twitter and just write praise for your product, which we see happen for consumer products all, all day long, right? Um, in B2B, it's a lot less common, but if, your customers are doing that, then you're at that you're you're in that realm of raving fans that are actually unsolicited posts raving about your product. That that's a really good start. Um, other other ways that we've uh, measured ourselves in marketing for that is creating content so good that people are willing to pay for it. And I'll give some examples. So B two B marketing by definition is just part of the marketing investment. We create it to create a demand engine, and I've talked about this in, in many opportunities. Um, but the standard that we said is we want content so good that people are willing to pay for it, even if we're not going to take their money. And when we see occasionally, uh, a, a professor from university of Illinois is reaching out and saying, Hey, I just read your latest gong lab article. I'd like to use that for my class on sales. What would it cost me to license your material? we say bingo. And we, we wrote, we, uh, distribute that across the team saying, see, we just make content that people are willing to pay for. Or when a sales enablement manager reaches out and said, I've just read your latest uh, templates from Gong. I want to use that for internal team training. What would it cost me to use that? We go bingo. We did it again. We created content. So good that people want to pay for it. And that, that, those are all good signals that you're creating something of an authority and a brand that the people are willing to pay for.
0: So, I wanted to and we need to kind of watch out on time here a little bit, but I wanted to go back to one of the one of your earlier comments, um, which is kind of a knockout, uh, I believe. It's the hey, my CEO gets marketing. Um, yeah. And um, uh, so number one, not not everyone is that fortunate. So this is number one, right? And uh, and number two, maybe the CEO isn't even the person that you need to convince. Maybe it's someone else. And. And you know, I rarely hear. Oh, it's you know, the CFO gets marketing, and that's why it was that was proved. Do you have a couple of um, tips or advice on how to uh, how to go about it when you don't have the oh he gets marketing or she gets marketing uh, label for a decision maker around you?
2: Yes, uh, I do, because because the question I, I hear from. Marketers all day long. Uh, my CEO or my CFO or my CRO doesn't get marketing, and uh, what should I do? So, uh, there's, there's a couple of ways that I suggest uh, approaching this. Number one, you know, I, I've met many CEOs and CROs that don't believe in marketing. I've never met one that doesn't believe in sales. Now, uh, why is that? Why is that? Because sales, they, they show their numbers. They're like, this is how much pipeline we have, this is how many deals we have, this is how much money we put in the bank. Uh, many marketers just don't do that well. So I would start by looking back at ourselves in the mirror. Um, it's probably the marketer's fault in many cases that they're not making a good business case for their investments or not showing their results in the metrics and in the way that the business cares about. If you're showing in a, in a management meeting or board meeting uh, how many likes or tweets you got, that's that's a problem. Those are not metrics that the business cares about. If you're showing how much dollar pipeline you created and what the conversion rate from that to business one is, now you're starting to talk the language of the CRO, the CFO, and the CEO. So first, as as marketers, we have to educate ourselves on what the business cares about. And that is the only language we should be using in the boardroom. Keep the likes and the shares and the website views for the marketing team. They're the only ones who care about it. Okay, those are leading indicators. I'm not saying they're on court, they're leading indicators because if you have zero traffic on the website, you're probably gonna have zero conversions and zero pipeline created out of that. So marketers should absolutely care about it, but don't assume that your CFO or CRO care about it. Talk to them in a currency that they understand, which is at least the sales qualified opportunity that creates pipeline that sales admits as pipeline wants to work on. So that's number one. So it's our job to educate the team around us on what we're doing, why we're investing certain things, and what are we producing as a result? Now, back to the CEO or CRO or CFO that don't understand or get marketing. I think as a marketer, our first attempt at solving this should be educating them and being aligned with them and really understanding their challenges. I've never seen a successful go-to-market team where the sales and marketing leaders were not talking regularly. And by regularly, I mean like on a weekly basis, uh, before we we all went remote, we My CRO and I used to go out every week for a coffee. We set aside 30 to 60 minutes, went out physically from the office, talked about how the families are doing, how the team morale is, what challenges do we have, and how can we solve them together? So we were aligned. Uh, I I wrote a short article article about it once. Um, If you're a a CMO and you don't know how your CRO takes their coffee, you're not doing it right because you're not meeting with them often enough. You should know exactly how they're taking their coffee. And so that, that's an easy, lackless test to know if you're really aligned with sales. If you're not, there's just no way you're going to succeed. If, if you're not creating raving fans out of sales leadership for marketing, they're, they're not going to be good partners and there's no way you as a marketer can succeed. So after you've exhausted and done all those things, if you still can't get through and they don't want that partnership, they don't want that alignment because they really, really don't believe in marketing then I would say you're probably not going to succeed in this company and you should make the difficult decision to consider moving on. There's marketers who get, sorry, there's CEOs who get marketing. That's as you said, Tony, it's the best case scenario. The next case scenario is leaders who don't know marketing but they know that they don't know marketing and they are open to you educating them and with the right information and speaking to them in the right terms of currency that they care about. This can still work, and then the third and worst type is folks who don't know marketing but don't know that they don't know marketing. So they assume that they know what needs to be done, or they're just not open to learning about it. And and those I don't know that you can fix.
0: Yeah, no, I can I can see that.
1: So I think there is one important thing um, that we keep going back to. It's like the ninety percent in in my mind, right? You gotta actually make the numbers, and that kind of also tells me that you probably spend the majority of your time not thinking about the brand dimension, but thinking about all the existing elements that actually drives the business forward. And I think I did not expect the episode to take that route, but I'm happy we ended up here uh, because there you ha- will have more predictability, right? And so I think this, that's actually, for me, I think it's a pretty important takeaway for people to kind of keep in mind um, that there's that, that frame of reference, at least now, uh, from someone who's built been part of building a massive brand.
0: I gotta say, I really like this... Um you know, let's let's find a better name for you know those ten percent. Um, you call it marketing experiments, I think, or or, or crazy UDI ideas. I like that um, one better. But <laughs> let's call yeah, it that. Yeah, I, I like it. Just think you're looking <laughs> on the
2: official reports. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> I, I I like I like that being a predetermined amount. I like that this is not a okay. I need to go to someone, give them a convincing spiel of something that doesn't you know that I don't know anyway. And then ask for the money, but it's it's going the other way around, right? Kind of, it's already there, and then you just find a sensible way to deploy it. I think this makes a ton more sense than oh, you know, I really want to do this thing. Let's build the business case, and and everyone that's reading this business case, everyone knows it's BS, right? And and I think this turns this dynamic around and makes this uh, makes this a really cool uh, and better approach. Uh, but also, sure, yes, you as a business need to be able to afford those 10% and this is, you know, this might be one or two months of payback and maybe you, you have investment round coming up and you want to think about maybe there's different. There might be so many other reasons to, you know, allocate those resources differently. Uh, but it's, it, I feel it's almost an impossible ask uh, for some of those things that you want to try out. To then expect you to build a business case that someone actually believes in, and you know this dynamic makes this uh, you know way more uh, way more doable to actually then get done, right? So I think this is a pretty cool, Mm -hmm. pretty cool takeaway from um, from the show. I
2: think uh, Miguel put it in in a in a good way. You know, it it might sound surprising to people that that ninety percent of our budget and attention is actually on the behind the scenes demand gen stuff, Um, but we are famous and i get interviewed every week on things like super bowl and out of home and and fun stuff that people see cuz it's more visible and exciting which is which is natural but nobody hardly ever interviews us on linkedin ads which we get told over and over by LinkedIn that you know every month they do an internal audit and they tell us and other brands who advertise who has the most effective ads in terms of conversion rates and, and uh, driving action. And, and Gong is up in the top like 1% or 2% or whatever most effective ads on LinkedIn or we do a trade show and they tell us um, when, once they count the lead scanners. Sure. No, no other booth got close to the number of leads that you scanned in the Gong booth. That's because we do very, very meticulous planning for our events and we, we spend a ton of energy on getting the most effective ads and creative and A-B testings. But those are kind of the run of the mill, the imagine stuff. And yes, they absolutely <laughs> take up more than 90% of our team's effort and attention and budget. Um, but it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's the fun Super Bowl in print and print and Chase Center stuff that get the attention. But and I guess that's only natural.
0: No, I think kind of for this specific audience, it's really the how do you argue for this thing, uh, or or how how should you as, you know CEO, rev or you know some kind of a leader in between, how should you you know maneuver with this thing, and and I think you you gave a pretty cool roadmap. It's not the oh you calculate this times that and then subtract five what? and then you get to this number. And um, it's uh, I, I it's, can't do uh, that with uh, a straight
2: face because we all. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no. no. <laughs>
0: Udi, this was wonderful. Uh, Thank you for being here. Thank you for spending time. Thank you for probably reciting the Super Bowl story for the 115th time. Never Um, gets old. Thanks for having me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Udi. Bye. Bye.